Our reading today is from Romans uh, chapter 11, verse 25 to 32. If you've got a Bible handy, you can grab that uh, and look it up uh, and read along. We'll also have the words uh, on the screen for you too. Romans chapter 11, verse 25 to 32. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Mike, and uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, we are, as Mike said, continuing a series we've been preaching in person in uh, Romans 9 to 11, and we've been making our way uh, through those chapters over the last eight weeks. Uh, commentators say that uh, this section of Romans is the trickiest in the letter and that chapter 11 is the most difficult and that's saying something really. Apparently uh, verses 25 to 32 are the trickiest of the lot and after, pre after preparing for today I think I concur. Uh, if you don't already have your Bibles out it'd be great to have them out so you can uh, follow along uh, this morning. Uh, these verses are tricky, but they're also some of the most contested in Scripture. Uh, there's many different opinions about what they mean, and they've even shaped some Christians' expectations about the end times, and they've even had an influence on US foreign policy. Now, there's lots about the Bible that's clear, but it's not always straightforward. And when we uh, come across verses like this, it's tempting sometimes just to move along. However, the whole Bible is God's word, not just the words uh, that uh, sit easily with us. Indeed, if we do ignore the bits that are hard to understand or accept, we actually miss out on the great blessings of wrestling with them and understanding them. Of course, this requires the help of God's spirit and careful reading. Among other things, this means looking to the immediate and wider context of where the verses sit to guide our interpretation. Otherwise, we may end up with conclusions that end up even contradicting other parts of Scripture. Just one example from our passage. The Apostle Paul says here that all Israel will be saved. But what does he mean by all Every Israelite person, whoever lived, whether they've had faith or not? And how would that conclusion square with the rest of Scripture? 
Well, the word all can mean everyone, each and every case, can't it? But it can also mean the whole, as in the whole people, not each and every. And when a goal is scored, you could say that the whole crowd cheered. But if you mean uh, each and every person, that's probably not true. You usually have two sets of supporters and a bunch of people in the toilets. Again, you can use the word all to mean variety, all kinds of. Uh, when you say all uni students study hard, you could mean every university student that's ever lived studies hard, which would be blatantly untrue. Or it could mean university students as a whole study hard. Or it could mean all kinds of university students study hard, not just the med students. Uh, the context will help you understand what is meant by the word all. So we need to carefully work out what the Apostle Paul means here. Finally, when we come to difficult verses, we should approach them with humility. As I said, there are some things that are clear, but others less so. And in these matters, we should be suitably humble about our conclusions. And so with all this in mind, let's pray as we get stuck into it. Uh, Father God, as we come uh, to your word this morning, give us insight and understanding by your Holy Spirit as to what it means and how it will change our lives. Amen. Okay, make sure you, you've got your Bible open. Uh, we'll be looking at these verses, but also others uh, throughout the context. Uh, just to sort of bring you up to speed with where we're up to, uh, Paul so far has been explaining why so many Israelites have rejected Christ. On the one hand, chapter 9, it's down to God, his choice to have mercy on whomever he chooses. On the other hand, chapter 10, it's, it's because of Israel's choices, their disobedience, their decision not to accept God's mercy in Christ. It's like the picture on your screen. Is it a duck? Or is it a rabbit? Well, it's both, depending on what angle you're looking. And so then the question arises, what's next for Israel? Has God rejected his people? Well, no, Paul states emphatically in verse 1 of chapter 11. I, he says, and others who follow Christ are proof that he hasn't rejected his people. Well, then how about those who don't, those who've rejected Christ? Is it game over for them? Again, Paul says emphatically in verse 11, no, God isn't done with them. His future plans include plans for their salvation. And that's what Sam Oldland and Mike Phillips spoke about uh, in our campuses last week. Uh, last week's passage ended with uh, Paul's hope that uh, the Israelites who'd been hardened would repent, trust in Jesus and be saved, that they'd be regrafted into God's olive tree. 
And so we come to today's passage, and here Paul reveals the mystery of God's future for Israel in verses 25 to 29, and then God's future for all people. And today we're going to spend uh, the majority of our time in that first part, the first five verses. Well, like last week, Paul directs his words especially to the Gentile believers in Rome. Verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that uh, you may not be conceited. And notice why Paul's writing here. It's, it's to guard against uh, ignorant Gentile conceit. Uh, perhaps they'd adopted an attitude of pride, of self-righteousness, an attitude of judgment towards the Jewish people. Perhaps they'd done so because they'd assumed that they'd replaced them in God's plans, given the Jewish rejection of Christ. Uh, Ignorance often breeds this kind of conceit. Uh, One example is the way that we tend to judge others who we've perceived have made a mess of their lives. If only they weren't so lazy or reckless. If only they were more responsible and hardworking, like me, maybe their, their lives wouldn't be such a train wreck. Uh, people often make these kinds of judgments towards people in poverty. But such self-righteous judgment isn't usually based on knowledge. It's usually based on ignorance. Ignorance of the privileges and blessings we've enjoyed. Ignorance of the trauma that other people have suffered or the barriers they may face. And so the solution to such conceited ignorance, among other things, is knowledge. And that's how Paul responds here to potential Gentile conceit with the knowledge of God's plan for Israel. From verse 25 and following. Israel has experienced a hardening in part. And that's what we heard previously, verse, uh, chapter 11, 11, verse 7. Many Jews have refused to believe, and so their hearts have been hardened. Not all, but some Jews. They've been hardened until the full number of Gentiles has come in. That's what's happening as a consequence of Jewish unbelief. We heard that last week. Verses 12 and 15, Gentiles are coming in uh, because the Jews have rejected the gospel and it's gone to them. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, and Paul here is quoting the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, Christ, that is the deliverer, will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul began in chapter 9 with great sorrow, unceasing anguish for his fellow Israelites. In chapter 10, his heart's desire and prayer to God is that they would be saved. And here now he speaks with an expectation of their salvation. But what does Paul mean when he says all Israel will be saved? It's a a verse that many Bible-believing Christians Uh, disagree over. Uh, Broadly, there are are three main alternatives. 
The first view is that Israel here means the church, all of God's people. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Jews. In the New Testament, the Jews plus the Gentiles. And so all believing Jews and Gentiles, all Israel, will be saved. Uh, it's a popular view, uh, but I don't think it's correct. You see, in verse 25, Paul uses Israel not as the church, but as ethnic Israel, the Jewish people. He uses it uh, in this sense, I think, in verse 26 as well. It's consistent. And he uses it uh, this way right through chapters 9 to 11. In, not, in chapter 9, verse 6, Paul says, Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. There is a distinction on how he uses it here, but it's a distinction within ethnic Israel, between believing and non-believing Jews. I don't think Paul ever refers to the church as Israel. And I don't think uh, this particular view is right because Paul deliberately pre preserved the distinction between, between Jews and Gentiles right through these chapters. This distinction is key to the issues that he's addressing. Why Israel have rejected Christ and why the Gentiles have accepted him. That's one view. Another view is to take the salvation of all Israel to mean all or most ethnic Israelites at some point in the future. Uh, this view takes the Greek word, uh, hutos, uh, tra uh, which is translated in this way here, in verse 26, to mean then. This word then is given a kind of a time or temporal sense. On this particular understanding, uh, what ha what's happening in verse uh, 25 to 27 is that Paul is describing like a chronological sequence, a historical sequence of events, and you'll be able to see what I mean in the diagram on the slide. The first thing that happens is that Israel is hardened in part. Uh, the remnant uh, which Paul describes in verses 1 to 10, they embrace Christ, but the majority reject him. They are those who are hardened. And as a result, the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. And the full number of Gentiles, the number God has appointed, come in and are saved. And after all the Gentiles have come in, then all Israel turn to Christ, and then they are saved. And Israel here is referring to all or a great number of Jews alive at the time when all the Gentiles have turned to Christ. On this view, that's what Paul anticipates in verse 14. I'll read it to us. I take pride in my ministry to the Gentiles in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. And the last thing that happens is that Christ returns. And so the quotes are from Isaiah and Jeremiah in verses 26 to 27, they're not referring to Jesus' first coming, but his second coming. This is one view, another view. And as a result of this particular interpretation, some Christians are looking for a time of a great revival amongst Israel in the future, a time of great responsiveness of Jews to the gospel just before Jesus returns. Uh, the famous 18th century American preacher 
and theologian, uh, Jonathan Edwards, he held this view and he connected uh, their conversion uh, with the uh, <coughs> return of Israel to their land. This view was also common among the Puritans and is, and is common today. Uh, but, but again, I don't think this is right. I don't think it fits the wider context of Paul's argument. I think the Old Testament quotes here refer to Christ first, not his second coming. Uh, verse 27 is a quote from Jeremiah 31. And it's about God's new covenant of forgiveness. During the Last Supper, Jesus said that this was established, brought into effect through his death, by his blood. But the main reason I disagree with this view is because the word, the word hotus, that translates in this way, it's actually a logical word rather than a chronological word word. It's a word we might uh, use thus, hence the translation in this way. So here Paul is describing a logical rather than a chronological process. This is the way all Israel will be saved. They will be saved in this way. And so the third, and I think the correct way to understand what Paul means here, is that all Israel will be saved through the process he's been describing. The initial hardening and then Gentiles coming in. Through that process, some of the Jews who initially rejected Christ will then turn to him and be saved. And that's the aim Paul described for his ministry in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 11. So he preached to the Gentiles in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Yes, Paul took the gospel to the Gentiles, but he also did so in hope that his brethren would witness God's mercy, that they would hear the gospel and that will trust in Christ and be saved. And so Paul, uh, in the verses this morning, He's not referring to some end-time event, but a process. He expected that would begin in his ministry and would unfold through history. As commentator Tom Wright puts it, a steady flow of Jews into the church by grace through faith. And that would happen until Jesus returns. And so what does Paul mean by all Israel here? Well, I think he means the crowd, the whole. He doesn't mean each and every Israelite, but he means true believing Israel. The Israel within Israel from chapter 9. Those Israelites who have trusted in Christ, the only way of salvation from Pentecost and onwards. That's what Paul hoped for. And that's what happened. And that's what's still happening now. Estimates suggest that there are more than 350,000 Messianic Jews worldwide. That is, 
350,000 people who are ethnically and culturally Jewish, but believe that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, and they trust in him alone for salvation. Uh, the Pew Research Centre in the US found that as of 2013, about 1.6 million adult Protestant Christians in the US were either raised Jewish or are Jewish by ancestry. Even today, in our church, amongst us, there are people with Jewish heritage. And so Paul's prayer, his hope, his heart for Israel is not in vain because Israel is very much still in God's heart. Yes, verse 28, they initially were enemies of the gospel, but that was for the sake of the Gentiles. In his sovereign wisdom, God used their hostility to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to us, so that we might be included into God's family. So Israel has been hardened, but they have not fallen beyond recovery, for they are loved by God. They are descendants of Abraham. They are, inherited, they are the inheritors of God's promises. For God is faithful, and his gifts and his call are irrevocable. Now, before we move on to the last section, which will be uh, much shorter, let me share just a few implications. Uh, first, the Israel that Paul speaks about is not defined by geography or by politics. True Israel, the Israel that Paul is speaking about here, is defined by faith. Those Israelites who trust in Christ. And so the modern state of Israel has no uh, special place in God's plans. And certainly the establishment of the nation state of Israel uh, back in 1948 uh, doesn't mean that Jesus is about to return. As I alluded to earlier, a particular interpretation of these verses and others have led some Christians, uh, particularly in the US, to lobby government support for the modern nation-state of Israel. But this, in my opinion, is misguided. Let me say there is nothing good about the Palestinian and Israeli conflict, the current violence and bloodshed, the systemic racism and killing of the Jews throughout the centuries in Europe the genocide in World War II that preceded the creation of modern Israel. But Christians who've used these verses either directly or indirectly to justify war and violence should stop. And instead of advancing the kingdom of God through power and politics, they and we should all heed the words of this statement from the leaders of Arab and Israeli Christians who are living in Israel. I'm going to read you this statement. And it's a statement in response 
to the current conflict. In light of the current situation in which it is expressed in polarization and hatred between Arab and Jewish citizens, we Israeli Jews and Arabs who share the same faith in Jesus as Messiah and Lord declare that we are united in brotherly love that is rooted in our faith and based on the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament. Our hearts agonize at the expressions of violence and hatred in our country, where we all live together and we have no other country. Therefore, we call upon all our brothers and sisters who believe in Jesus our Lord to practically express our unity in Christ Jesus, in love, in mutual help, and steadfastness, confronting the forces of Satan that are full of hatred. All of these, since we have been called to be ambassadors of the Lord, and so that the name of God would receive glory and his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, would be magnified, glorified, both in our country and in the world. Our prayers are that the fighting and hostility would cease and that the peace of God prevails in our land and among our neighbours. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Ephesians 2 verse 14. With blessings and hope for quieter and better days, the Board of National Pastors and Elders. It's a powerful statement. It's a Christian statement. Second, we should not expect a mass conversion of Jews to Christianity marking the last days of history. As I said, I don't think that's what Paul means here. Of course, Paul isn't saying it won't happen either. God is able to do that. And in his mercy, wouldn't it be wonderful if he did? It's something that Paul prayed for, and it's something that we could pray for as well. Third, final implication. However Jewish people come into God's kingdom, they need to call on the name of Jesus. But how can they do that if we don't pray? And how can they do that if preachers aren't sent? Maybe God has sent you into the lives of your Jewish friends and colleagues, not just to share the gospel, but to live it, as those Christians in Israel are at the moment. Maybe God is calling our church to pray for and to support our mission to the Jewish people. Perhaps we're not in the best position to do that, but maybe there are other churches, other ministries that are, and we could support them. Isn't it easy to become preoccupied with our own concerns, our own struggles, our own ambitions, our own happiness? Isn't it easy just to focus our own, on our own lives, our own relationship with God, and only pay attention to the Bible to the extent that it 
it, it speaks to that. That's why I love how these verses lift our eyes upwards to God, his plans, his purposes, the salvation of the world. So let's sum up. God's future for all, verse 30. Gentiles, don't be conceited because just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too now have become disobedient in order that, this is God's purpose, they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. That's the, Paul, the point Paul has been making since verse 11 of chapter 11. God's purpose for the Jewish people is the same as his purpose for all people. And what is it? Mercy. For verse 32, God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Friends, we're all in the same boat. Jews and Gentiles, Australians, Asians, Africans, Americans, we've, we've all rejected God. There are no special privileges in that regard, no particular criticism on anyone. And so there's no room for pride or boasting or conceit. For we're all sinners and we all deserve God's judgment. But God's purpose is the same for all, that we would all turn back to him to receive his rich mercy and his undeserved grace. As we sung earlier, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. There is a scene in Revelation chapter 7 and it's a glimpse of God's glorious future. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. People from every tribe, nation and language, so many that they can't be counted. And what we're seeing here is a culmination of God's saving purposes. And at the forefront, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Not a literal number, but symbolic. All Israel saved. This stunning picture is the church. Israel restored, standing alongside the nations, the Gentiles, all equal in the sight of God, all equally disobedient, all equally objects of God's mercy, all equally saved by God's love and grace and all forever praising him and the one who lived and died and was raised for, for them all. 
and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen.